Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's Friday, all right, and I'm glad to be back on the air again with you all. But then again, I don't ever recall a time where that was proven to be opposite. But here we are discussing again Paul Revere's Ride by David Hackett Fisher, part two of two, to the Patriot Riders' Road to Revolution. So we will be discussing in the second part starting with the year 1765 onward to what transpired leading up to April of 1775. We must remember that Paul Revere's ride was not just something that happened overnight. There were many other events that culminated over time leading up to his famous ride where he where he performed what was necessary by sending a message, but at the same time, once that message was sent, it was up to the people, not only of Lexington, Massachusetts, but elsewhere, to say, hey, what are we going to do with Revere's message? Are we going to take his words and, and be prepared to not only protect our homes, but protect the villages around us? So our first leadoff question is the following. By the year 1765, where does Boston stand as a city? In other words, what is its economy like? What is its population like? I mean, we've got to find out here. Where does Boston stand as a city by the year 1765? Well, unfortunately, Boston is in decline. Its population has barely increased within the last 50 years. So even when Paul Revere was born 30 years later in 1735, while there may have been some increase in population, it wasn't as as, uh, significant as it should have been. Businesses have declined, and whatever jobs were in existence between 1756 to 1763 to support the French and Indian Wars Efforts, most notably that of England, after the war ends, those jobs are no longer uh, required. So basically the people who were um, in support of England working the jobs given to them have now felt betrayed because they they pretty much have every right to feel as though they were um, used property. And and of course, not only are they the not only are they the ones reeling, or I should say, feeling the um, negative impact of the um, decline in Boston's economy, but how about artisans and merchants whose economic livelihoods are dependent upon um, upon a uh, vibrant and prosperous economy? They too are um, feeling the um, negative um, impacts. So is Paul Revere himself, and many of the uh, and and most people in Boston are facing financial hardships to where they are um, in debt. Paul Revere himself was in debt, but luckily he um, was able to um, settle his debt matter in court to where he did not have to spend any time in jail. Of course, it has nothing to do with the fact that he's Paul Revere. He was just able to have 
good luck on his side to where uh, resolution was attained, and he was able to um, escape um, a long-term problem. Unfortunately, there were many people, other people, who were not so fortunate. Many in Boston were dependent upon paper money as a way to uh, pay off debts. And England decides to do things a little differently. They, they feel that uh, the people of Boston should start paying their debts off with hard currency. Well, the problem is that not everyone has access to hard currency, most notably silver. If you don't have access to hard currency, then it does become all the more difficult to pay um, your debts off. But plus two, Parliament feels that if they print more paper money, that paper money itself won't hold any true um, value long term because paper money itself um, fluctuates. Its value can depreciate at any given time. Was Parliament's state of financial affairs any better than Boston's? Well, I, you know, some people I'm sure would like to say yes, but I'm going to tell you that no, Parliament's state of financial affairs wasn't any better. After all, you know, Britain's been fighting a seven years war with the French and the Indians, the French and Indian War. And by 1763, folks, their treasury is drained. They've exhausted their resources. Well, yes, they've emerged victorious by controlling all the land west of the Appalachian Mountains into what we now know as the Northwest Territory, the future states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin. You would think that England would be celebrating left and right. Well, to a degree they are, but the problem is that they really can't celebrate a whole lot because they are cash-strapped for money. What decision are they going to make that, in their eyes, is okay, but it's going to backfire in ways that they don't even know just yet? But in a short amount of time, they're going to start seeing for themselves that her subjects aren't as... um, How do I say it? Her subjects aren't, um, just because they are subjects, it doesn't mean that they are going to um, agree with everything she does. And it could mean uh, taking up, um, it could mean showing defiance, it could mean showing um, disapproval, it could mean a lot of things. But but when I think of uh, Parliament making an ill-advised decision, Involving her subjects, the 13 colonies, how about imposing taxes without the direct consent of the colonists themselves? Well, why would it backfire? Because there had been no proper channel of consent. In other words, Parliament didn't send any representatives from England over to America to talk directly to the people of Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Virginia, the largest of the 13 colonies, you know, Parliament didn't bother to send people. They just automatically assumed that, okay, well, um, they are subjects of ours and they will agree on anything that we do, even if it means not um, providing direct channels of consent. Well, when I think of um, a violation of um, direct consent, how about a, a famous rally cry that emerged 
shortly after the first declaration of uh, improper consent, taxation without representation. That was the rally cry instituted or devised in the aftermath of Parliament's passage of the 1765 Stamp Act. That piece of legislation basically required that all legal documents transported over to the colonies be stamped on American soil. Not on British soil, folks, but on American soil. Don't you think that's a bit unfair? If you're passing the legislation in England, shouldn't the um, stamps themselves be placed in England? Sure, you could still be in um, disapproval over it, but why do it to us? when we didn't send representatives overseas 3,000 miles away to, to support or vote against it. The Stamp Act, um, you know, think about it. If you're going to get married in 1765, if you're supposed to, I would put my marriage off. You know why? Because I don't want to pay for something that I did not uh, consent to. So the Stamp Act affected people's everyday livelihoods in terms of uh, legal documentation, not just an individual piece of legal documentation, but just documents from a, from a wide um, array of uh, matters. There is good news to report. The Stamp Act did not last very long. It lasted less than a year. The Act itself was repealed, I believe, in March of 1766, the act itself went into effect in November of 1765. So if you think about it, folks, it didn't even last six months. Was Paul Revere a part of um, an organization that voiced its uh, displeasure behind the Stamp Act? Yes. In the summer of 1765, Paul Revere joined an organization known as the Sons of Liberty, the Sons of Liberty, however, did not originate in Boston. It originated in New York City, but there is a Boston chapter of the Sons of Liberty. And remember, folks, Sons of Liberty did not originate in Boston or New York City, or let alone colonial America. It originates overseas 3,000 miles away in England. It's coined, or let alone phrased, Sons of Liberty by those in Parliament who sympathize with the colonists over their unfair um, treatment by being taxed without their consent. Remember John Wilkes and Isaac Barry? They are the two men who come up with the term Sons of Liberty. Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania is named after them, folks. So whenever you hear Sons of Liberty, thank those overseas 3,000 miles away, those men whom were in opposition to uh, parliaments, um, not just their passage of the Stamp Act, but how they went about um, imposing legislation left and right on um, the 13 colonies without direct consent. While there is um, good reason to celebrate the repeal of the Stamp Act, Paul Revere went as far as engraving a design for a large paper obelisk containing symbols of liberty and defiance. Paul Revere is unique in many ways. What I find most unique about him is that for all 
for all the events he was a part of before and leading up to the uh, American Revolutionary War's outbreak, Paul Revere has a story to tell for all of the events he saw firsthand. And many of the events he saw firsthand, while they were going on or after they were... um, after they had taken place, the way he told the stories was through um, engravings. And this was an example of one of those um, situations. And we will find out about some other ones here soon. 1767, though, is going to um, be another setback for the colonists, most notably the people of Boston. Why? Well, Parliament knows that, okay, they uh, failed on the Stamp Act and they've repealed it, but they've decided now that they're going to take another stab at us by passing what's called the Townshend Acts, or what we call the Townshend Duties, named after Charles Townshend. The duties, or rather the Townshend Acts, I should say, placed duties on lead, tea, paint, and glass, just to name a few um, examples And this is another violation of improper consent. The legislature, the Massachusetts legislature, decides that they've had enough and they want to find a way to uh, counterattack. And by doing so, they implement what's called a circular letter, not just to, to those in Massachusetts, but to all the other colonies, advising everyone to resist as one. In other words, to speak out against the um, injustices that Parliament has engaged in through this piece of legislation because there's been there's no direct consent. No one has agreed that these measures are safe and sound. Well, the Massachusetts legislature was successful in um, in being defiant to where the legislature voted 92 to 17 to uphold the letter. And as a result of that, Paul Revere himself went about making a silver punch bowl to commemorate the event. And that bowl itself placed all 92 men's names who supported upholding the circular letter. I'm glad I wasn't one of those 17 men who would have voted in opposition to it because if they any of those 17 men who voted in opposition it's probably safe to say that they were loyalists they were loyal to king and country and more than likely they their homes could have been uh, vandalized uh, for all we know some of those men could have been tarred and feathered the bottom line is to have voted in opposition while yes everyone's entitled to their vote entitled to how, whether or not they choose to support or oppose something, but 92 to 17, uh, that's a huge uh, disproportionate, um, what do you call it, gap in terms of supporting and opposing. Now, given that Parliament, given that Parliament as an institution has experienced uh, widespread inabilities in enforcing the Stamp Act, and while they're still struggling to enforce the Townshend Acts, or Townshend Duties, what becomes their next enforcement strategy? 
Parliament sends customs collectors directly to Boston. Now, customs collectors are those who um, go about collecting uh, the taxes. But even the customs collectors themselves, folks, are going to be in for a rude awakening when they get to Boston. They are going to be harassed like there's no tomorrow. And I can tell you this, that some historians know for a direct fact that a couple of customs collectors had their homes vandalized and properties inside their home were set ablaze on fire. Uh, their windows were um, were broken or shattered for that matter. Um, one or two customs collectors were um, assaulted along with being tarred and feathered. So... <laughs> Customs collectors do not have it easy in Boston. And it's gotten so bad to the point where historians know for a direct fact that a handful of them left and went um, back home to England. And even when they were replaced by other customs collectors, they too were met with fierce resistance and opposition. Paul Revere was not a big fan of customs collectors and neither were the Sons of Liberty, which he was a part of. So let's move on to 1768. What happens on the date of September 30th of that year? A British fleet, we're not talking three or four ships, folks. We're talking like the equivalent of an armada. A mass number of ships arrive into Boston Harbor. Now, why did I say Harbor and not Harbor? Well, I'm not from New England, but I do know that New Englanders have their own unique way of pronouncing uh, certain words. So instead of saying harbor, a New Englander says haba, just like uh, Harvard University. We may say Harvard if you're not if you're a non-New Englander, but New Englanders will say Harvard. So there you have it, folks, with that um, pronunciation. So a British fleet arrives in Boston Harbor on September 30th, 1768, and the fleet itself was positioned in a ring-like formation. Why in a ring-like formation? How about to show off their might for all of Boston to see? They're trying to send a message. Okay, while we can't enforce the legislation being 3,000 miles away, and while we can't assure that our customs collectors are going to be able to do their jobs peacefully, how about send the whole how about send something that's equivalent to the whole nine yards effect overseas three thousand miles away for you all to see up close? And that is a large British fleet. Two British regiments of regulars, by the time they've landed on Boston's long wharf, Paul Revere goes straight to his shop. He gets out a sheet of copper. Remember, folks, Revere has studied copper engravings. And he goes right to work by making an engraving that today has become famous. This engraving, or rather I should say print, if you look carefully at it, you see a handful of ships in Boston Harbor. You also see the wharf but you also see the town of Boston, not too far away, but you see steeples and buildings further inland and up close to the waterfront, or the waterfront of that time, or what we might think of as the wharves. 
So the story itself is one of an, of an unjust government engaged in making war upon its own subjects, in this case the people of Massachusetts, most notably Boston, while, yes, the unjust government is 3,000 miles away in England, the unjust government has unleashed some new cannons, being that of the British fleet. And in the background, the steeples and the wharves and all the other buildings, whether it's homes or businesses, appear to be totally innocent. In other words, the bystanders from a distance who represent who who uh, fill those homes or places of uh, business or worship, and after all, Boston is home to 14 churches, they are all innocent bystanders looking out into the waterfront or out into the water and seeing what constitutes or what is made up of a greater evil empire. All right, let's move on two years later now to 1770. What is significant about 1770 in Boston? Or let alone, what, is, what significant event happened on March 5th of 1770? And was violence in Boston as tense like it was on the night of March 5th of 1770? So for starters, the, the significant event that um, happened on March 5th, 1770, was the Boston Massacre. The Boston Massacre was not a one-night event, folks. Now, I know for years, historians probably would have told many of us, or even in school, we always got this assumption that the British uh, fired into an innocent crowd of bystanders who were uh, peacefully demonstrating their, their uh, disapproval of British presence in a non-violent way. I wish I could say that was yes, but um, based off of the readings I've done in recent years, most notably two uh, readings, or two books I would recommend you all to read. Number one, Eric Hinderaker's Boston's Massacre. And then for those of you who were with me, um, when I did my first podcast book on um, that was written by Dan Abrams, uh, being John Adams Under Fire, The Boston Massacre Trials, both of those books give us a whole different outlook on what really transpired on the night of March 5th, 1770, but the events that led up to that night. So long story short of it, the Boston Massacre resulted in British troops being eight British troops that were part of a larger contingent of British forces in Boston, but the eight British troops that were a part of the um, sentry um, guarding the, um, their station, how it unfolded was that one soldier who was out, out uh, manning his, um, what we might call booth or, or station, was um, attacked and knocked to the ground. He got up and alerted the other members inside to come out and, um, and provide him with extra protection the eight soldiers basically formed they formed their own line of defense but no matter what direction they were looking at the people in in front of them being the um the unruly crowd or what we would call a mob and i'm not talking organized crime folks in colonial days an unruly crowd most notably in the eyes of the british most notably british troops were referred to as a mob 
historians know that uh, one or two of the soldiers said to the crowd that we're not going to fire on you. You can express your um, opposition peacefully. We won't fire on you unless, unless you keep antagonizing us. So in other words, the unruly crowd kept egging on the soldiers. They were so fed up with the British presence in Boston, not just British authorities in Boston, but the troops. And on one hand, you can't blame the, the, these people. They did not like the fact that the British troops had come in and just literally taken over their innocence. On the other hand, objects like oyster shells, snowballs, to billy, what we might think of as modern-day billy clubs, sticks, objects were being thrown left and right at the soldiers to where, to where one of them, after a couple of them got knocked down, someone else in, in the soldier um, rank and file, file said, you know, take, you know, fire, fire now. And so they did, and five people were killed. Now, this may seem like a tragedy, folks, but how about, um, you know, what we might think of now as stand your ground? Um, how much um, abuse can you take from those from the opposite side who don't want resolution? Of course, I think it's fair to say that neither side was really looking for any resolution at this time. But to answer the second part of the question, that uh, British soldiers' presence alone in Boston leading up to the night of March 5th, 1770, was bad enough, but the British troops had fueled their share of the fire to where they not only instigated conflicts with the townspeople, but they too became targets from townspeople. So in other words... It's fair to say, for all the wrong reasons, that both sides were engaging in what's in what we sadly call eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. There was extremism from both parties. Extremism, sadly, isn't anything new. But in 1770, most notably in Boston, Massachusetts, where the cradle for independence is born, the foundations laid out, I think it's fair to say that you're going that extremism was just um, inevitable. Now, in the aftermath of the um, of the Boston Massacre, what is done to quell the existing tensions in the city? Well, let me ask you this. Did Paul Revere, along with John Hancock, including Samuel and John Adams, what did all four of them agree on? They agreed that the accused, being the eight British soldiers whom had fired into the crowd, killing five people that night of March 5th, 1770, they all deserved, they all agreed that the soldiers deserved a fair trial. For one, a fair trial would reduce the existing state of tension. And who do we have to thank, folks, for when we hear the right, when we hear the following? That person deserves the right to a fair and speedy trial. We have John Adams to thank for that. He took on the case of defending the accused. Why did he do this? Could it, I mean, I'm sure some of you are thinking, isn't he being traitorous? Or, or do you think he could be acting like a traitor? No. John Adams does not like the fact that the British are in Boston. 
However, as a lawyer, John Adams is trying to use this trial as a teaching lesson for the greater community. In other words, he wants the community to know that when their actions get out of, out of hand and no resolution is in sight and when they resort to violence, that, con- that there are dire consequences that will result And while, yes, it may have been unfortunate that five people lost their lives, John Adams does know deep down that maybe tensions could have been, um, that the situation itself could have been handled better. So he wants to use this trial as a teaching lesson for the greater community so that people will know going forward how to exercise their emotions better when things don't go their way. Well, what kind of justice was handed out? The soldiers, though, they were acquitted, but two of the eight soldiers were found guilty of manslaughter, most notably Matthew Kilroy and Hugh uh, Montgomery. Historians know that both of these soldiers had it out for innocent bystanders, that they, that they were in, intent on wanting to um, kill people in Boston, that they wanted to um, inflict harm on innocent bystanders because they just did not like the fact that the people of Boston were defiant and would not do anything in terms of uh, properly adhering to orders overseas 3,000 miles away. So, yes, these two men are found guilty of manslaughter, and they both receive branding on their thumbs with the letter M representing manslaughter. And I should point out that both of these men were also required to cite a biblical verse or individual biblical verses. This became what's known as benefit of the clergy. By reciting a biblical verse or two, they had um, partially been exonerated. However, by having the letter M on their thumbs, wherever they went, people would know what crime they were found guilty of. Ironically, these men also knew that um, if they did anything else again that was manslaughter or something else, they would face execution. That also meant no, no more benefit of the clergy requests. It was a one-time thing, folks. So but you better you, my advice to you all is that if we had been alive during this time and we had the opportunity to um, be given benefit of the clergy, uh, you better take it. Don't squander it because it is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Now, in the aftermath of the uh, Boston Massacre trials, I should report this, that there is uh, some good news to report. What is the good news? Well, okay, two of the eight soldiers, for starters, were found guilty of manslaughter. They got their proper punishment. British troops leave Boston, and the Townshend duties are repealed. So there, there is a sense of rejoicing, or a sense of rejoice in Boston. But there is one other problem. <laughs> one other problem. How about, yes, the Townshend duties were repealed, but there was one thing that was not repealed. The tax on the tea. I like drinking tea, but 
I don't think I would have been in favor of uh, tax on the tea. This is another grave mistake on Parliament's part. 1773, three years later, tea ships arrive into America's ports like Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and Charleston, South Carolina. The ship's presence, all the ship's presence alone, met with hostilities throughout the 13 colonies. So in December of 1773, this month, in December of 1773, saw Paul Revere and other leaders like Dr. Joseph Warren place men into different groups whom disguised themselves as Indians, and they went about dumping hundreds of East Indian tea chests into the Boston Harbor, all as a, way, all as a means for um, expressing their displeasure at having to pay tax on the tea. I wonder if this will catch up to the people of Boston over time. In other words, I'm sure it will just be a matter of time before uh, <laughs> Parliament and uh, King George III learn about these um, disgusting acts. But before we get to that part, given the colonists' widespread anger over tax on tea, what else did Paul Revere do or I should say, what did Paul Revere himself do next that allowed him to play a more prominent role? For starters, Boston took the lead in establishing a network of committees throughout the colonies. These uh, committees would eventually be called the Committees of Correspondence. Well, this, this is going to be the first step towards uh, what we call national networking. So in other words, the people of uh, Massachusetts will get to learn more about their neighboring colonies like Connecticut, New Hampshire, Rhode Island. And perhaps this corresponding, uh, this means of better corresponding will make its way further uh, down south into the middle colonies like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and then farther south into uh, the Carolinas, Georgia, Virginia. This will be a way to really get to know how others throughout the colonies feel about British hostilities towards her subjects, all in the name of unfair representation, all in the name of improper consent. Not just on one piece of legislation, but on the whole nine yards. So Paul Revere himself has been asked, or gets asked, to visit many towns in New England not just uh, towns outside of Boston, but yes, towns in New Hampshire and Connecticut. And he will go as far south as New York and Philadelphia. And, and this is quite a, um, a task onto itself, folks, but someone's got to do it. I think Paul Revere is the right person. From late 1773 to 1775... Revere himself made five journeys to New York and Philadelphia regarding Committee of Correspondence Affairs, and to think he never got caught once. I think that's a miracle unto itself. But it might be fair to say that Revere himself knew Revere himself probably knew a lot of the roads after the first um, mission down south to Philadelphia in New York. But to have made five journeys, that's very remarkable unto itself. 
Our next question is the following. In the aftermath of the Boston Tea Party incident from December of 1773, what action did Parliament take? Okay, Parliament knows now that another um, egregious act of defiance has taken place. And for those of you who don't know what egregious means, it's inappropriate. Well, Parliament beginning in 1774, instituted a series of legislative measures that became known as the Coercive, or in our eyes, as the Intolerable Acts. The Americans saw it as the Intolerable Acts. Um, we saw, uh, the Britain saw it as the uh, Coercive Acts. These it wasn't, remember folks, it wasn't one piece of uh, legislation. It was at least three or four legislative measures that became known either as the coercive or intolerable acts, depending on where you lived. What did these um, series of um, acts um, lead to? For starters, it led to the limiting of town meetings in Boston. And to make matters worse, it led to the closure to Boston's port. The new port that would be home to uh, commerce in Massachusetts coming in and out of the harbor, would be in Salem, which is north of Boston. Salem is um, right near Marblehead, which was also a very vibrant fishing community. So Boston no longer has a harbor for business. Then uh, Parliament also, in these new measures, goes about repealing the Charter of Massachusetts. It establishes a new court system in Massachusetts and also allows imperial officers to transport Americans overseas to England for trial. Now, this is another unfair uh, piece of, um, what do you call it, uh, enforcement, rather. Okay, if you commit a crime in Massachusetts, you should be allowed to stand trial in Massachusetts. Why should you be sent overseas to England considering that you didn't commit the crime in England? Well, England's getting tired of her subjects 3,000 miles away committing crimes that involve her, her people who are being sent over to enforce law and order. Okay, so let's bring them over to England so that they can get a taste of their medicine and they can be put away to where no one will be allowed to come over and visit them or let alone speak on their behalf. It's, a very, it's very unfortunate. But when Parliament becomes desperate, they will go to whatever, whatever extremes there is to enforce, the, to enforce what they think are fair and just laws when we know for, for a direct fact that it's the exact opposite. So, how did men like Paul Revere, Dr. Joseph Warren, and other prominent Bostonians respond to these intolerable or coercive acts? Well, during the summer of 1774, that summer, representatives throughout all of Suffolk County, and Suffolk County is home to Boston, representatives throughout all of Suffolk County came together and agreed unanimously. And what does unanimously mean? By a large vote. They agreed unanimously, these representatives throughout all of Suffolk County, 
agreed widespread upon a set of resolutions written up by none other than none other than Dr. Joseph Warren himself. The resolutions became known as the Suffolk Resolves, which denounced the intolerable acts as being unconstitutional. The these new resolutions urged the people of Massachusetts to form their own government and be prepared to fight in defense for the state's safety. So in other words, the uh, measures, these new resolutions, were meant to say, hey, the intolerable acts are to be null and void. They are not to be considered valid. They are not to be considered relevant. They have no purpose in our way of life as we as we of people of Massachusetts are trying to be um, productive people but cannot adhere to a failed way of life that is being imposed upon us 3,000 miles away as we are not, um, as we are not being uh, given our most basic inherent rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. After these measures got approved, Paul Revere left Boston on another mission, by horseback, he, bring, he carries with him the Suffolk Resolves in a bag <laughs> en route to Philadelphia, where the First Continental Congress was in session. I should point out, folks, that the First Continental Congress, while, yes, there were a few in that Congress who advocated separation from England, most notably Massachusetts, I should point out that Samuel Adams and John Hancock are just among the few um, handful of members from Massachusetts um, attending the um, Continental Congress. Um, and I'm sure many of you are wondering, who at this time from the First Continental Congress is hesitant about separation from England? Not just hesitant, but perhaps very defiant about wanting to separate I would say those from Pennsylvania, most notably John Dickinson. Now, I read a book back at the start of this year on John Dickinson, and Dickinson, rather, is a very fascinating character. He's not a, a bad guy. John Dickinson does share his concerns about those who feel oppressed, who feel um, as though they are not valued or who have been who or who they know that their rights have been trampled on for John Dickinson not to get off track but I want to make this point here for John Dickinson it's one thing to want to be independent it's another thing to have a plan put in place ahead of time in Dickinson's eyes if we did not already have a plan put in place prior to this Continental Congress meeting, then how can we expect to be uniform as one larger nation if we don't have a plan in place to win the peace amongst ourselves as one nation, then how can we effectively govern ourselves when we don't even have a a blueprint laid out to know where to start and finish so that at the at day's end, the end product has unanimous consent amongst all people present. So that's what John Dick, Dickinson's biggest dilemma was. It's one thing to want independence, 
But if you don't have a blueprint laid out, then how are you going to um, have a government that will be successful, not only when it's first instituted, but who's to say that that government itself would be in existence a year later? So Paul Revere goes to Philadelphia. He leaves on September 11th of 1774. It took him five days, folks, to get to Philadelphia. How about 350-mile journey in five days? That means that Paul Revere would have traveled, at best, 70 miles a day. And think about this, folks. In colonial days, to get somewhere by horse and buggy, if point A to point B was 30 miles away, you might be lucky if you got to um, a halfway point if not 15 miles, but say 10 to 12 miles. We must be reminded of the fact that, uh, you know, just because a destination was 15 miles away, it didn't mean you got there in one day. A lot of other things had to be taken into consideration. Weather, the health of the horses, um, and if your um, horse and buggy broke down in terms of a wheel, um, it could be, it could be longer till you got to your next destination. So as the uh, quest for independence grew more steadily in late 1774, did Paul Revere's presence become all the more grand? Yes. Revere himself really became, in my opinion, a jack-of-all-trades, not just so much from from the job he held, but... What I mean by a jack of all trades is because it, what I mean by that is that he had a real unique knack for for being on top of um, of stuff that uh, he was um, set out on accomplishing, but he was always in the right place at the right time. To me, that is one way of describing someone who can be a jack-of-all-trades. In other words, he, you know all the ins and outs. You know where to be at this point, and you know where to be somewhere else, and you know how to get the job done, regardless of the assignment before you. I should also mention out that there were no controlling figures in Boston's revolutionary movement. But historians do know that there were about seven groups of Boston Whigs. Why seven groups? Well, they know that there were about at least seven different organizations that anybody in Boston could have been a part of that, um, that, um, that was affiliated to uh, opposition with uh, British presence in the city or just with, British, um, with the way Britain was uh, running things in colonial America that uh, most notably the people of Boston saw as um, unfair and unjust. So um, what I do know is that um, that these seven groups of Boston Whigs comprising a total of around 255 men, historians do know that only two served on five groups or what we call committees or organizations. These committees ranged from the Loyal Nine, North and North Caucus, Long Room Club, uh, Tea Party, the Boston Committee of Correspondence, uh, London Enemies List, uh, St. Andrew's Lodge. 
So what we do know is that uh, only two men served on five groups of committees. Uh, one of them was Dr. Joseph Warren, and the other was Paul Revere. And uh, yes, Dr. Joseph Warren was always at the forefront of every um, major committee. These two men were the leading communicators, the coordinators, and organizers behind the, in, behind the fight for independence. I think it's probably fair to say without these two men, while, yes, John Hancock and Samuel Adams were very vital, we must remember that they're in Philadelphia right now at the First Continental Congress, so someone else has to keep this um, flame alive. Not just one person, but other people, most notably Paul Revere and Dr. Joseph Warren right now. Revere's leadership came to him because others saw him as a man whom could keep his word, or I should say his promise, as well as just getting things done without being easily distracted. All because of his fundamental commitment to liberty and what it stood for to those whom had been oppressed. We're getting to the end here of this podcast session, folks, but let's uh, pay very careful attention to uh, to what I'm going to be saying here as our time is almost about to expire. What was the motto to Boston's Sons of Liberty? I don't expect many of you all to know this, and that's okay. I didn't know it until I just reread earlier before this uh, podcast. Boston's Sons of Liberty motto is the following. Equality before the law. What would this mean? Well, well, for one, equality before the law to me, to me would mean that we should value people all around us before, before um, coming to conclusion on, on what an existing law would define equality as. But in the eyes of um, men like Paul Revere, equality before the law would mean the following, in his eyes or based upon what his interpretation would be, it's a belief that everyone had an equal right to be judged according to their value. Everyone is given an equal chance to succeed regardless of class status. Okay? All right, in Virginia, for example, okay, you might not be a part of the aristocratic gentry, but you should still be given an opportunity to succeed. Well, of course, I know the rules in Virginia are different than Massachusetts, but in Massachusetts, I think it's fair to say in Massachusetts there is far more diversity. For one, you've got 14 churches of all different you know, religions compared to Virginia, where there's just one, the Anglican Church, the Church of England. You know, you, you may not have to be dressed in a suit jacket, but if you wear the same kind of clothing and attire that Paul Revere wears then you should still be given the chance to succeed. After all, his portrait that was done by John Singleton Copley tells the story of a hard worker in Paul Revere who, yes, has unfinished work before him. Yes, the sleeves on his shirt represent an empire that is um, that still has her subjects, um, what do you call it, in a uh, messy situation. They are in a... Um, a tangle of webs that have no um, exit. But Revere's 
presence alone and how he presents himself, even though he may not be dressed like a true gentleman, he still has that sheer determination that the job is going to get done. And even with all the darkness around me, I can still find a way to, per, to finish my um, assignment. And with this little light that's on the teapot, that small beacon of light will still guide us, being the colonies, through the darkest times of uncertainty. But Paul Revere's mission in April of 1775, it happened because of everything else that happened in Massachusetts beforehand. The massacre, the Boston Massacre, the Tea Party, the coercive, intolerable acts, the British first arriving in 1768, the Boston Massacre trials, everything that happened in Massachusetts beforehand where he had served his community with dignity, class, and honor. The mission in April of 1775, folks, happened because of everything else. If none of those other events had happened, who's to say that Paul Revere's mission in April of 1775, by getting word out that the British were coming, would have held any true relevance? Yes, he was a messenger that night, but the message he laid out to his fellow people was this. Okay, yes, the British are coming. What are you going to do about it? It was his way of, of, it was the equivalent of John F. Kennedy's speech. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Okay, I've laid the blueprint out for you. Now you need to go and take my message and take matters into your own hands by being a unified people. In other words, it's us, we, ourselves, not I, me, myself. That is what Paul Revere is about, folks. A messenger who is telling his people that we all need to be united. Us, we, ourselves. If you are I, me, myself, then you are left to fend for yourself. Well, folks, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. And thank you again for being faithful listeners, regardless of the topics I have discussed through my podcasts. I continue, all, I continue to encourage all of you to keep listening. Thank you again, and when I'm back on the air again next, we're going to learn about British General Thomas Gage. And I believe that you all will find him to be um, interesting to learn about, just like Paul Revere has. Of course, I don't believe Thomas Gage would have said anything like Paul Revere did with the British are coming, but of course Paul Revere's story is more than just the British are coming. But I do believe Thomas Gage will be an interesting study. After all, David Hackett Fisher's book is more than just about Paul Revere's ride. It's, it is a story of about two men who's, um, who are on a mission, but yet their mission... Their mission is one that seeks to uh, achieve different results. We've already learned about one man's mission, so why not learn the other man's mission, even if they are the enemy? Take care for now, and I hope all of you have a good weekend, upcoming weekend that is, and I look forward to being back on the air again next. Take care and stay safe.